This morning we're going to kind of see two groups, and, and well, let's just start right there. So Luke chapter 15, starting in verse 1, it says, And then all the tax collectors and the sinners drew near to him to hear him. And the Pharisees and the scribes complained, saying, This man receives sinner and eats with them. Now, you see these kind of two groups here. So now you have tax collectors, which to us, we don't like necessarily IRS and stuff. But tax collectors and sinners, and the tax collectors of the day, again, this would have been Matthew, and, and you look at what they would do is, the governor would say, this region should produce this much in taxes. Boom. You know, be like, you come to Manteca, I expect I'm going to put somebody over the tax office here. You guys need to bring me $2 million every year in taxes. Okay, and so what you would do is, okay, well, I want $2 million. Some other guy comes along and goes, you know what, I want that job. I'll bring you $2.5 million. Another guy goes, oh, yeah, I can bring in $3 million. And so you would bid on that job. And the reason you'd bid on that job is anything you could collect over that amount, what was required, you kept. And so the tax collectors were brutal. They, they had a tax on one way, wheel, two wheels on it, way before toll bridges. Depending on how many axles you had, they were taxing them, you know. They had a tax for all kinds of things, you know. And, and they would try to collect as much as they could so that way, um, that way they, you know, could cover that amount they owed plus more on that. And so as they did this and that, they would end up getting a reputation you know, they, they'd be, oh, they're just going to try to get a nickel and dime me for everything they can. And usually what they did is the Romans were smart. They got people that were Jewish in the area of Judea to collect taxes in Babylon. They get Babylonians. They wanted, they got people that knew local people and you could work them better that way. So these, these were not just tax collectors. These are people you thought were your friends that were traitors and against us. And so you, they weren't liked in that sense. And then you had sinners, and these sinners, the really word here, like notorious sinners. Okay? And so um, can you turn me down on the mic? I don't know about you guys. It seems really loud, like I'm getting an echo a little. But um, there we go. So when we see it, and you see notorious sinners and these tax collectors, and he's hanging out and eating with them, and they refer to him as this man, you know. So these Pharisees, you have sinners, you have the Pharisees, and then they have what they've explained as this man sitting there. And as they're sitting there, and, he's, and they're eating, and they're complaining about it, you know, he starts to pull out these parables, and I'm thinking, you know, in our culture, is there anybody that was, if they were, came in to this church or any church, that people would be complaining about? Like, I can't believe at that church they allowed, you know, is there anybody in your name? You can think, well, no, we're pretty open in this and that. Well, you look at um, some of the stuff, we're, we're, you know, Fresh Wind, Fresh Fire, you read that book, and here, one of their main outreaches were out to this area where there were men that were homosexual, used, transvestites, and everything else. You know, and I've heard, you know, of, of men that come in the church that have, they're bisexual, and they're sitting here, and they're sitting here for months, and they just show up, and they're listening to the Word of God, they're getting to know, they're not repentant of yet. How would we react? How would you react in your heart? What would, would you be? Would you be a little state offish? Yeah, maybe not. Okay, what if Hugh Hefner sat down in that row and you get another, you know, think of the people, right? These would be notorious people like, wait, the 
Playboy guys here, this guy's there. You know, somebody would walk in that didn't belong to their church and go, man, we're not there. They're, I don't know what they're preaching. We're out of here, right? That's scary. And so there's that response to what Jesus is doing. And the Pharisees, not to say they were justified by their thought, but to look at Jesus's heart and what is correct and what is the correct stance. And so the Pharisees are like, man, you're not even just receiving these people you should have nothing to do with, but you're eating with them. And that culture was like, man, you're inviting them over to your house. You're hanging out with them. What are you doing being around these people, you know? And so, and they bring out and they say, this man, you know, they don't say the teacher. They don't see the rabbi or rabbi, why are you doing this? They just call him a man here. And it kind of shows where their heart's at. And so we're going to look at kind of three stories, three parables here. And each one I think you can kind of see or make a little differences between them. First, we kind of see the shepherd, right? And Jesus is known as a good shepherd. And then you have um, a woman, the, uh, actually a bride in this case. And we could say the bride of the Christ is the church and the church is full of the Holy Spirit. And that's, you know, Spurgeon and some say, hey, you kind of see Jesus, you see the Holy Spirit, and you see God the Father in our three examples here this morning. But as you sit and you look at it, and they say, here, here's, here's this man. And so let's look at this example, because in verse 3 it says, And he spoke to them this parable, or he spoke this parable to them, saying. So he's got this crowd, he has a whole bunch of sinners there, and then he has these Pharisees, he's speaking to both groups. And he says, What of you... Or what man of you, have a hun- having a hundred sheep, if he loses one of them, does not leave the ninety-nine in the world, or leave the ninety-nine in the wilderness and go after the one which is lost until he finds it? Now, we think of shepherds a little different. When you think of Bible shepherds, you think of these. You know, there Jesus shepherd, King David was a shepherd. You know, you, you think of. Um, acceptable people in that sense. You know, Jesus, when, when, when Jesus was born, the announcement came to the shepherds in the field, right? That's not what shepherds of the biblical times were like. Shepherds in biblical times were homeless guys that had a job, in a sense. They were, when they came through town, you looked for what they stole. They were despised. They weren't liked. They were people on the outskirts. They were usually lonely. You didn't like shepherds. Shepherds weren't thought highly. They weren't even able to give testimony in court. A murder could happen, and it's like, no, you can't. What, your witness is a shepherd? (laughs) Good luck with that one. I mean, that's the the thought was. And so when Jesus sits here, and look right there in the beginning of verse 4, and he says, what man of you, having a hundred sheep? Wait, 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 wait. He's just taken these Pharisees and all these people and said, hey, what one of you are like one of these shepherds? You know, so if you're there as a Pharisee, that kind of stung. If you figure you're a notorious sinner, you go, okay, I fit in that class, you know. And so he sits there and he, he brings that out and he says, which one of you, which one of, of you like this shepherd? Which one of the least of you? You know, and, and gee, God's our shepherd. We're, we're What's amazing is here they called him a man, and Jesus being our shepherd, when you, when you think of that, John, Chen, John chapter 10, it goes through Jesus being the good shepherd. He says, I am the good shepherd. The shepherd gives life to his sheep. Jesus compares himself to this lowly state, which is amazing. And so we have Jesus here comparing himself, saying, which one of you 
Which one of you shepherds, if you had 99, wouldn't value the one? Wouldn't go looking for the one? Let's take it and go, okay, I'm going to give you the simple principle of the least among you. The people you would think were the lowliest. And let's look at them and let's think about what the least person would do in this situation. Okay, if he's got 99 and one goes off into the wilderness, are you not going to go after him? He's going to go and he's going to find it. And the valuable of the one. Jesus going, that one is valuable. And it's, it, it, you know, I don't know about you guys. I'm thinking one out of 99 is not bad, right? I only lost one today. You know, it's not bad percentage-wise, right? Um, if you said that about your children, you'd be in trouble. You know, we mostly made it. You know, but in this case, sheep had a lot more value than I think I would value sheep. You know, you think of uh, King David, that example, him being a shepherd. He, he faced some things for some sheep. I don't know about you guys, over a little lamb, I'm not fighting any bears, any lions, any of that. But David did. He was out there as a good shepherd. You know, the Bible talks about, uh, and, and again, in John, when Jesus goes, hey, I'm the good shepherd, a hireling man, when the thief goes, he runs, right? But the owner of the sheep, the caregiver, the shepherd, he stays and defends. You know, and so he's going to go after, even the lowly, he values that lost sheep. He's going to go after the one. And so we have this in this story here, this parable, you'll see we have sheep, one who gets himself lost, and that one who gets himself lost. Now, sheep aren't smart animals. I don't know if you guys know this. They're not very smart at all. It's been said, you know, if you get sheep and they start to follow each other in a circle, they'd actually dig a ditch deep enough they can't get out. They can get these little worms in their nose that itch and they'll bang their head until they kill themselves. Sheep aren't smart animals, okay? We are compared to sheep in the Bible, by the way. And so, you know, you'd be going along, you'd be going along a path, and a sheep would see an opening and jump off. So at some point, this shepherd's there, he finds out, I'm missing one of the sheep. One of the sheep's gone. He leaves the 99. We don't know, if, if you're an accountant person, you're going, what, he left the 99? Are they safe? Where did he leave them? It doesn't say if they're safe. Jesus doesn't answer that question. Maybe he just throws it out there, I don't know, Kind of shocks some of you guys. Wait a minute. Why would you do that math? That math doesn't work out. But he goes after the one. And in verse 5 it says, And when he has found it, he lays it on his shoulders and rejoices. And so we have this picture of the shepherd going out, and when he finally finds the one, he picks it up and puts it on his shoulders. And the reason is, it's tired, probably worn out, but also it can't get lost. If you got an animal over your shoulders, it's not running off. It's easy to keep in control in that situation. And, and it's not, you know, it's like cuddling a puppy or picking it up so nothing's going to get it. I mean, if anything in the wilderness is going after the sheep and it's on your shoulders, it's got to go through you first. You know, you're not chasing it. And, and so it's there. And so it's now under control. It's safe. It's security's there. Not the best position for a shepherd, in my opinion, right? If you're walking through the woods... Right? I'd have the sheep out there on the little carrot, I mean leash, carrot out there on the little leash, and have a bat in my, you know, woods, the animal's dangerous. No, I wouldn't have it to where my arms are holding the thing around my head. I don't, you know, I know, I, I hope you guys have never done this, carrying your little kid on your shoulder and a bee comes along, and no, we'll just leave that story in the past. But you know, <laughs> you got your kid there, what are you going to do? Drop the kid, swap the bee, I mean, yeah. Sometimes you have to bear some things. But you sit there and you see this picture and he's rejoicing. He's now carrying the sheep back. He's rejoicing. 
He isn't beating the sheep, spanking the sheep, yelling at the sheep. You know what I mean? I think of all the things that go on. There's, there's one thing that people say, oh, they, well, they would take the sheep, and if the sheep kept wandering off, they'd break its leg and put it around, its ne- and then the shepherd would have to carry it, so it would learn to stay with the shepherd. That's not necessarily there, and that could cause other problems. Some say, okay, you can bind two of those sheep's back legs, and it makes it harder for them to walk so they don't run off. That would make more sense. But, you know, you don't see this. He's rejoicing. He's not sitting there scolding the sheep, but he is rejoicing, carrying the sheep back. And, and just the fact that he's found it, the joy that he has found what was lost. And, verse 6, and when he comes home, he Facebooks and tweets all his friends together and his neighbors saying to them, Rejoice with me, for I found my sheep which was lost. Now you can imagine how excited you have to be to share this. You know, I lost my sheep and now it's found, and that's a big deal. Now, sometimes shepherds would go out in groups and come in in groups, and even to this day you can see the shepherds come in and all the sheep kind of get mingled, and one shepherd goes this way and calls them, the other one goes this way, and they all divide. So he might have made some calls beforehand saying, hey, I'm missing one. Did one go the wrong way? And then out, went out looking for him. But you see this, and it, it's, such a, it's a celebration. I'm going to call everybody. I'm going to let everybody know. There, there's such a joy that not, I just got back late in the middle of the night and went there. And, and rejoicing, and, and he wants them to rejoice with them. And you sit there and go, okay, this is a good parable. How does that practically apply in your life? And for some of you in here, there's been a situation where you have had to go out in the middle of the night after a lost sheep. Somebody you care about that's now in a situation, now you have to go help them out. And I cannot think I was, you know, I might have been happy inside after I got home and the things calmed down at first and maybe got some rest, but I don't know if I was joyful at the time. Like, well, I'm going to go pick them up, whether well, this and this, you know. And, you know, you make comments like, stupid should hurt or whatever, you know. There's just things, but you look at this and, and the joy that it is now safe. And I think as a parent, though, when you walk into a situation, no matter how hard it is to run out in the middle of the night and and do something, sometimes it's a relief. We've had some friends that um, we haven't, the girls are older, 20s and stuff, and they've moved out and stuff. And um, one lives up in Sacramento area, and I haven't talked to her maybe six, eight months or so. And every once in a while, I'll just send a text, how are you guys doing and stuff, check in on them. And... um, I got a call that said, you know, very distraught. Hey, I need to move out right away. Can you help me? And I mean, can you be here in 30 minutes? I'm like, what's going on that she's calling me? This isn't good. I, you know, worried. And, and so it's like, well, I got to do this and this. And I, I, then I can come and see about helping you move. And just really distraught. And so grab the truck, trailer, run up there, get to the place. The gate's not opening, this and that. I'm like, man, I'm going to call her mom, see what's going on, see if she knows what apartment's in. Call her mom. Her mom's like, What? This and that. And I said, yeah, that's what's going on. She said, okay. And the other daughter's on the, in the car with her on the phone goes, I'll call her. No, she's fine. So at some point I've texted, how are you doing? And she got my number. And this lady who was going through whatever she was going through or whatever the thought was, I don't know, decided uh, to call and, I don't know, pray for the gal. But I'm, it was just relief. Here I got off early, changed my schedule around, got in my truck, grabbed a trailer, drive to Sacramento, and I wasn't upset that, who's this person? No, okay, this isn't going on. This person isn't in this trial. 
And it kind of just gave me that, you know, whew. You know, and they're like, oh, we're sorry, you know, this and that. You know, her, her phone number is now different, and so I guess they changed it, and the lady might be mad because everybody's called asking for her. I don't know, you know. And, um, but the, I don't care. You know, okay, it was a waste of time driving gas all the way up there and everything, but she's okay. That's the main thing, because it didn't sound good. Whatever didn't sound good, she's okay. That was more important than any of that, you know. And you kind of sit there at first in the beginning of the week. I'm going, why the heck am I going through that? Well, that was odd, God. And then I go, oh, it's a good illustration. That's why I'm doing it. So, you, you know, you want to do interesting things for no reason at all, become a pastor. No, sermon prep. Um, but you sit there and you look at that and the rejoicing in this, the joy in it. In verse 7, it says he gives this example, this picture of heaven. He says, I say to you, that likewise will be more, that there will be more joy in heaven over one sinner who repents over the 99 persons who need no repentance. Heaven over one. Can you picture that scene that here you have heaven, the heavenly hosts. You think of what they're doing. When sinners repent, they're rejoicing. That's what's going on. Over the 99 who will not, not ever repent is what that word is. No repentance. Not that they do not need to repent, but they will not ever turn to repentance. There isn't ever going to be that. Heaven's rejoicing over the one. And the interesting thing here with the Jewish people, their thoughts for sinners and these people were that heaven rejoiced when they were obliterated, when they were destroyed and wiped out. The Jewish mindset was when heaven and God destroys and kills these people off the earth, angels celebrate their death and they're gone. That's what their thoughts were. And here Jesus goes, no, 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 it's just the opposite. You guys who sit there, there and think you're righteous, when one of these heaven rejoices that they're found, that they're no longer lost. And I mean, this had to be kind of shocking to him in that sense. And we sit there and we kind of look at this and you look at the care for the one and, and many. And I, I just love the example of the one over the 99. When you look at um, simple things, you know, in ministry, in the church and stuff, we do different events and stuff and things. And we, we had Good Friday. We don't expect a thousand people to come out for Good Friday or nothing. Simple service, right? Simple service. Watch Passion of the Christ. Sit here. I think... You probably sit down and in that room, just a good odds guess, there was probably one person who wasn't saved that I can remember that was there that night. That I would go, yeah, that guy, I don't know where his salvation was, right? So here we get together in this, and it wasn't about an outreach as much as getting together with family. But on the way home, talking with Bernardo, John's brother, hey, what did you think about that movie? What did you think about this? He ends up you know, sharing the gospel with him, praise to accept Christ. Heaven's rejoicing. You know, could you imagine if we had like the big harvest crusade and you have thousands and thousands of people and you always see all these people come down and go up front. You know, they always get, and they don't, people getting saved, but professions of faith coming down saying, I want to repent and believe in Jesus. And all these people. Could you imagine in that whole auditorium if one person came down? Wouldn't there be mixed emotions of people? Only one. Only one went forward. What do you, is that, you know? But the truth is God would do all that have all that time spent, all that energy spent for the one. That's awesome. That, that's the true, true show is 
you know, that would just reveal God's heart to me more. That he's willing to have all these believers, obedient believers, you'd assume, serving God in this manner to do all these things for that one. And that's our Savior. That's what he would do for us. And even though we sometimes get together and you sit there and go, oh, well, you know, this many, this many. You know, it's like, oh, yes, you know, church, there was thousands, you know, the church is full of 35,000 people. That's amazing. Yeah, did anybody repent? Just a thought. You don't know what God's doing in people's heart, but did, did anybody repent? Anybody come to know Jesus? But they're really good people. They're, you know, they're the best people in the whole town. Everybody would tell you, though people in those church, well, they're the nicest people you'll ever meet. You know, and sadly, that's sometimes how we look at things, and that's not how God looks at things. That's not how heaven is looking at things. In verse 8, let's look at the bride, if you would, the bride or the church. Um, in verse 8, it says, Or what woman, having ten silver coins, if she lost one coin, does not light a lamp, sweep the house, and search for it carefully until she finds it? Now, I'm not just talking she's got ten coins in her pocket and she drops one and she realizes, oh no, I've, I've lost one. It's not the monetary value of the coin. What would happen back then is when you were a bride or when you were married, you didn't have wedding rings. Okay, One of the things it would be, or most of the time, there would be a head decoration. And on that head decoration, they would have coins tied. And so if you had ten coins and you lost one, it's like you look down at your ring and one of the diamonds is missing. It doesn't matter how nice your ring is. It's the fact of what that represents, right? If you lose your wedding ring, guess what happens? The whole house goes on shutdown. You make sure nobody turns on any water, just in case we've got to check all the drains. We are doing everything to find that ring, no matter the value of it, because of what it meant. And so here she's lost this one coin. She sees, oh no, it's gone. And so she lights a lamp. She's sweeping the house. She's searching carefully until she finds it, because of what it meant. And like I said, I don't believe it's a, a stretch to go look at this and go, okay, here you have a woman. You talk about Jewish culture pressing this again, right? Okay, you have a woman. So the first comparison's a shepherd, okay? Jewish guys would wake up and they'd thank God, dear God, I thank you you didn't make me a Gentile, a dog, or a woman, okay? So now we're talking about somebody even less of value, Right? Here we got just a woman, and if she loses this one coin, how important is she going to look for that thing? Here you have somebody who's not a great value, and, and what would she do? She'd even look for it. By the way, it's, you know, it's Gentiles, dogs, women. Cats didn't even make the list, just so you know. Now, I love cats. But um, they just didn't make the list. Maybe because they don't belong on the list, or maybe they'd just be too far down the list. I don't know. Either way. And so you sit there and you look at this and she's there, but there's some interesting things. She's intently looking. She has a purpose. When something like that goes, if your wedding ring is lost, there's an intent. The whole world stops. I know in our house, if you cannot find your phone, the whole world stops. When my wife's ring stops, the kids know. There isn't a, oh, I'm going to go look over here and sit down and get back on your phone. No, you will get, Yeah. It'll be on restriction, we'll take your phone, we'll destroy it in the garbage disposer or something. Very dramatic. No, but you, this is serious. we got to find this. This is more important than dad's keys, more important than a lot of things, you know, whatever. This is, this is it, and it's an intent, and there's, there, you, can, you could 
you guys have all been in that situation when you've lost something that important. This is the heart. This is what God's sharing. This is the scene he's placing here. She's going to light a lamp, which wasn't common and was expensive. You know, if you were poor and you're in a house with bad lighting and candles weren't cheap, you're turning on all the lights, turning on the floodlights, you're sweeping the house, you know it is serious when mom's making you clean the house to find it. Just saying. So we sit there and we're looking and she's looking intently. And when she found it, she calls her friends and her neighbors together saying, Rejoice with me, for I found the peace which I've lost. Again, such a joy to where it can't be kept silent. She doesn't want to keep it silent. You want to share it with everybody. You're going to be, you know, like I said, blasting it on Facebook or Twitter. You're putting it out there. Look at what happens. And verse 10 says, Likewise, I say to you, there is in the presence of the angels of God one over one sinner who repents. One sinner who repents. There's this great joy in the presence. In the presence, imagine not like a feeling, but a filling up to where you're in a room where there is a buzz of joy. Where you just walk into a situation and you could walk right off the street and you walk in going, What's going on here? It's like you walked into a, a stadium on the right side of the team and somebody just scored. You're like, what just happened? You can tell everybody's excited. That's how heaven is over one sinner repenting. And we're not just talking about one sinner who is unsaved. You think about, here this coin got lost. It wasn't its coin's choice. The person who lost it wasn't intending to lose it. You know, sheep kind of walk their own way and can get themselves into trouble, you know, just not being bright. Here you have something that happened that wasn't necessarily planned, but yet was still lost. You know, and we sit down, and I was thinking of this, and we go, okay, if this is the church of God, are we intentionally looking for the lost? Are we lighting a light? God's word is the light of the world. Jesus is the light. Are we shining that light? Are we intentionally looking, seeking in the crevices for those who are lost? And even those among us. Because there's times as you've walked as a believer, there's people that you've seen in church, and then they're not here. And, oh, and then you find out, well, you know, that person, he's struggling with this or that, or she's struggling in this and that sin. And what's our intent? Well, I know some of you in here are awesome, because what are you doing? What? They're doing what? I'm going to call them up. I'm going to call them up until they answer the phone because you know they don't want to talk to you if they're in sin. That's the way that thing can go. Call them up. Let them know, hey, this and this. I'm praying for you. And I know you're probably going to be mad at me because you don't care to be you know, doing the right thing now. But there's that calling. And then when they finally get to the point of repentance, then that call comes in. And then the hard thing is they come back into church and what do they feel? Everybody knows how I blew it. Everybody's judging me. Everybody's looking down on me. And that shouldn't be our heart. Hey, this brother, yeah, he sinned, he fell, now he's back. We should be rejoicing in his return. Our heart should be rejoicing in his return. You know, and, and just as a child, just as a lost coin, that thought is there. And it's kind of funny when we don't do that. We would love it to happen to us when we fall, right? That people are like, yeah, I'm glad you're doing better, you know, you know. Because we almost like pretend we're never going to fall, right? It's like, it's like one of those things, you don't want to ever admit that you could actually struggle with sin because if, you know, you don't want to admit that and so you don't want to be like, hey, bro, no problem, I struggle, we fall and all that. A couple of you might, but, you know, that's, I think, where that kind of comes from where we kind of seem judging. Why is like, oh, stand off, I wouldn't do that. It's like the self-righteousness pride or something. It's kind of thinking about that, going, why, why do we get that way? 
Why do people feel judged? And sometimes it's just the guilt of what they've done and they need to, you know, um, allow God to remember that he loves them regardless. But to rejoice over it, to rejoice over those that are lost, those that are returning, God's heart is to rejoice over that. Many times when you think about it in this context, when you blow it, when you've fallen on your face, when you've made a situation where God comes to you, he gets right in your face and says you have to repent. And finally you break down, God, I blew it, I'm sorry. What do you think his response is? Now i got to put up with you some more, Tim. Okay, well, you know I'm God, I know enough. 342 days, you're going to blow it again. No, he's rejoicing. Most of us do not see God that way. We think when we get it back, he's going to give us a lecture. You know, he's, he's not this loving father who's going to rejoice when we repent. Like, oh man, i got to forgive you again. No. That sure changes things when you slow down and let that sink in, doesn't it? That heaven's rejoicing, even as a believer, when you repent. When you think, man, I'm struggling with this, because how many times does Satan take that sin, that area of what you feel is too dark, that thing you would not want to share with anybody, your spouse, or nobody to know that you're struggled with, and go, man, I just got to keep hiding it. I can't be honest with it. I can't deal with it. People are going to look at me down because of it. Man, God's just going to... There's no way God wants to have anything to do with me. That's all such a lie. When you sit here today, and you sit there and go, where's all the areas you've struggled in your past? Is there anything that still holds on where, man, somebody brings that up, your eyes go down? That's not what heaven's doing. That's not how God views you. You talk about freedom in Christ. How about just freedom from our sin and our past? Isn't that such an amazing thing? And so many of these tax collectors and so many of these sinners that are sitting there in that place, they're following Jesus because there's the hope of that. There's the hope that even though I've totally made a mess of my life and everybody knows it, he's willing to forgive me. He's he's not just going to forgive me. He's going to rejoice over that. He's going to give me his righteousness. What an awesome thing to sit and look at. This is his heart. So you can go, okay, he invites us to come. We come, he wants to forgive us. He wants the disciples, if he wants us to forgive all. Well, let me know, I want you to know my heart. My heart for other people, my heart for you. That's the amazing thing about serving God's people, serving people, and getting a glimpse of heart, his heart. Then you go, man, I would have in myself never chose to care about this person that way. And God just prompted it on me, gave me such a love for this person. And then you realize, whoa. He loves me that much too. He loves me that much too. Because we can forget how dirty and sinful we are, can't we? We can forget that, oh yeah, we're the Pharisee that needs to be repent. We can start thinking, no, I'm obviously not in that crowd. And then God shows you the situation, you walk through it, he gives you a heart for it, and then you realize, whoa, he loves me that much. And he's rejoicing over having me back. He wants to wrap me around his shoulders. And as we continue on, and we look at the Father's heart here, verse 11, and it says, And he said, A certain man who had two sons, the younger of them said to his father, Father, give me the portion of goods that falls to me. So he divided to them his his livelihood, and not 
Many days after, the younger son gathered all together, journeyed to a far country, and wasted his possessions with prodigal living. Now, normally in this culture, you did not get your portion of inheritance until somebody dies, just like in our culture. Even more than then, you were there, you were with your father, you were in a relationship. For this young man to come to his dad and say, I want half my inheritance, what I'm doing now means I don't want to have anything to do with you. I'm going to, I want to act as if you're already dead. For our relationship from here on out, boom, you're dead to me. I just want this, that's it, and I'm out of here. Besides being that of a relationship thing as a father, having that kind of hurt from your son wanting to consider you dead, the reality of it. It's half of your livelihood. Now, if you took half of your livelihood, okay, what do you own? Well, we're talking half of your house, half of your this. Back then, it's half your herd, half your sheep, half your this. It's half your ability to even make more money. It's not half, it's half your, you know, now we go, we kind of look at it and go, okay, well, it's half your ability to earn. It's, it's cutting your paycheck in half as well. It's a huge that besides the disgrace that would be. To even allow your child to do this would be harsh. Would be an act from the father to allow it. But yet the father even still allows his son to do this. And he goes off. You know, he decides to go live this way, a disgraceful way. Prodigal living. You guys know what that is? Prodigal living is a waste. To spend money in excess to waste. Okay. Um, I was trying to think of examples of this, and I don't know how many would, you know, if you got, it'd be like buying the Mona Lisa and lighting it on fire. Totally purposeless. That'd be a waste. Some of you guys, yeah. Okay. Maybe, you know, one of the Guten Bible or something, you know, the first printed Bible, you know, with tons and lighting it on fire. For one of you more musicians in here, that'd be like a 1937 Martin and getting on stage and smashing it because you can. I mean, it's just waste. Waste. 100% waste. For me, I'm more of a car guy, and I just can't have the heart to give the good example of that. No. But you just see this, and that's what he's doing. He went out, and he's just blowing it. He's partying, and it's like, don't tell me about anything. And at that point in this man's life, there's no way of influencing him. He's doing what he is. He's, he's going to tell you, what? I'm just enjoying it. You know, don't be a bummer. You know, don't tell me to repent. I'm fine. I'm my dad and his world man hit all his rules. That is oh, and it farthest from my thought. I'm enjoying myself. But verse 14, but when he had spent all, there arose a severe famine in that land, and he began to be in want. So his first choice to go out and live this way, to take everything he had, to walk away from his father, which was his choice, he chose to walk out there, chose to live in this situation. But now has left him in a point when a hardship comes, he's not going to survive it. He, he is now at a point where this famine, which wasn't as of his own doing, is not just hard, but possibly deadly to him. And, you know, you sit there and people go, oh, I can live this way, that's no problem, what's the big deal, you know, this and this and this. And what they don't realize is that now they've put themselves in a place of severe hardship because now the storm that comes is going to take them out. You know, I'm going to live this way. I'm going to make these choices. It's okay. I'm not this. I'm not that. I'm not, I don't have to be rooted in the word of God. And then hardship comes and it takes you out. And now he's put himself in that situation. And 
In verse 15 it says, And then he went on the journey, journeying, or he went and he joined himself to a citizen of that country, and he sent to him into his fields to feed the swine, and he would gladly have filled his stomach with the pods that which the swine ate, and no one gave him anything. So he is starving, he is there, and he's willing to eat whatever. Jewish culture, man, swine were not supposed to be eaten, bacon, the diseases, the worms they spread. Even to this day, pigs are very filthy animals in the sense of the bugs and everything else they carry and contract. When we went down to Guatemala and we were serving there, community health evangelism, some of the things you don't realize that are basic thought processes that you've been taught are hygiene. Okay, bacteria, bugs, these things people didn't know. When we were down in Guatemala, they didn't know these things. The pig would be in the house, the little one-year-old would be paying with the pig feces and getting worms and all this, and you have to teach them hygiene. You know, deworming kids, taking care of that stuff is good, but you need to teach them, you need to educate them that, hey, there's stuff in this that can hurt them, the pig needs to be tied outside, those things that we take for granted. Very much in this culture, pigs were dangerous in that sense. They weren't sure where they got stuff from. You did not want to be around them. To be a Jewish young man and out feeding swine and be lower than the swine, you talk about a, when you said that, everybody in this audience's heart went, ooh. And then some of them will probably went, oh, I have a kid that's gone. Oh, I hope not. That's the worst thing you could happen. That's the news you would not want to get back home of where your child is. And here he's in that situation, and here he's feeding them, and, they, and pods are um, they're kind of a gourd fruit, what they believe it was like feedstock. Okay, it's not good for eating. You know, I remember being at Calvary Chapel, Modesto, and they had a cornfield across the street, and, um, you know, Damien Kyle's office sits up in the window, and he can see the cornfield across the street. Since it's kind of a not busy street, because I don't know how many times a day cars would come in there, pull around, and they'd start stealing the corn. And he goes, and I always kind of got a chuckle because it's feed corn. It's nasty. It's, you, know, I, you don't want to eat it. I mean, but, you know, they're getting their corn. And so that's what it was. It would, you would have to be very desperate on the verge of starving, and nobody's even wanting to give them any food. That's how bad this famine is. This is how bad this situation is he's in. And that's the situation, sadly, it took him to come to his senses. And in verse 17, it says, but when he came to himself, he said. You know how many times you run into somebody or you see somebody in sin and you just go, man, this is not you. That's what you want. I know you. This person is not you. It sounds weird when you say it, right? Like, no, I know you and this isn't you. And they're thinking, yeah, it is. I'm right here. No, it is. When somebody's in sin, he came to his senses. It wasn't him before this, was it? He's out living, he's, boom, you know, blinded by sin. And he's out there, but at a point he comes to his senses. And he says, how many of my father's hired servants have bread enough to spare, and I am perishing with hunger? I'll arise and go to my father. Now, he sits here and he says, my hired servants. That's a position not very close to the family. You had servants of different degrees in that time. So you would have had, you know, father, the children, and then you would have servants that were in the family, that were part of your family. Literally, they, you know, generations of these servants would have served. They would have been in the house. They would have been around you. And then if you had need of more servants, and you, didn't have, you might hire out and buy or pay for somebody who is of lesser means to come in and work. 
that was actually considered a lowlier job than a servant. Makes it way different than what we think, right? As far as a slave or a servant, we think, man, if you're a slave, you're, you're less than a hired employee, not back then. If you were just hired in to come help out, you were pretty low on the totem pole as far as that family was concerned. And so he goes, I just want to come into the lowest. I don't even want to be part of the family. I'll just come in and, and just be able to eat, not even be part of the family in that sense. I'll just go back and I'll look for that position. And this is the... Verse 18... Verse 18 is something I know many of you, me, and we've seen family members, friends, and people wish they would say this. I will arise and I'll go to my father's house. Because there, we've seen so many family, friends, that have got themselves in this situation, that they've always been down there, and they have thought exactly about what they would say, how they would repent, how they would do it, but they do not rise and go. They get to that point, and it is so hard to see. And many times they'll stay there at that point. They'll stay there in that situation. You'll see a brother or somebody backfall, and they go use, and their thoughts, they're just, yeah, if I just go back and I just do this and this and this, and they never act on it. But he says, I will go, I'll arise, I'll go to my father's house. And I will say to him, Father, I have sinned against you in heaven, or against heaven and before you. I am no longer worthy to be called your son. Make me one of your hired servants. At first, when we look back, it says, give me, right? Hey, give me everything I want. You know, give, give me half of my inheritance. Give me. You know, and then his heart changes to, yeah, where's it back there? says, give me, and now you see him use this word, make me. Make me. And I thought that was interesting when I was going through because many times as, as, as we're in a situation or with your kids, you notice they, they're entitled. You have to love me. Give me this. Give me that. You know. You're not going to pay for my college. I'm going to sue you, by the way. That's happened. Now he's make me. Make me. Just make me your servant. And I think many times, do I, how do I come to God when I'm praying? Am I, am I, God, give me this. God, give me that. No. God, make me a new creation. God, change me. Am I open? Is that my heart to him? Make me. And he comes back in just that statement of his heart right there. And in verse 20, and he arose and he came to his father. But when he was still a great way off, his father saw him, had compassion, and ran and fell on his neck and kissed him. Now to the hearers of this, it would be shocked. The correct response of what this father would have been required to do by the society, by culture, was not receive his son in back at all. It would be considered gracious for the father not to let him go without killing him. You've gone off, and it's not just that you took the half the family wealth. The way you've lived as a pagan, as a sinner, and all this, you are now debased, and you should be wiped out. Taken to the city gates and stoned, you are, you're, you're of no good. And his father was looking afar off. He was waiting. He was longing. Every day, his father's eyes were out looking for him to see him afar off. To recognize him. Is that him there? And then he ran. And in this culture, for a man, men to run, 
an older man to run, not because of his age, but to run was, it would be an odd, okay? It would be like you're sitting there in London, right? And here's this homeless kid walking along, and here you see the prince run out of the castle with his security chasing him in his boxers, tackle this kid, and hug him and kiss him on the neck. It would be totally improper. It would be even confusing until you realized it was his child. You, you would be at a total loss, like, <gasps> that was a king. I mean, every tabloid in the world would be there. It would be like, you know, bright light, consistent flashes going. I mean, it just wouldn't be expected. And this is what the father does. And maybe even the fathers has suggested that he ran out to meet him and he ran there before anybody else in the village could get there. Because if somebody else in the village got to there, they would have told him to go. You no, know, you're not a welcome here. You can't come in here. You can't, no. There would have been people preventing him from even coming near his father. And yet the father runs out a great way with compassion, falls on his neck, and he kisses him. And, and here the son, he's sitting there, and, and the son said to him, he's got his rehearsed line. He's probably a little confused. You know, he says, I have sinned against you, against heaven, and in your sight. I am no longer worthy to be called your son. How does the dad respond? You're darn right. I can't believe you did this and this and this. No. But the father says to his servants, bring out my best robe, put it on him, put a ring on his finger and sandals on his feet. Bring out the fatted calf and kill it. Let us eat and be merry. Now, he puts his robe on him, he puts his ring on him, and his sandals on him. Now, a robe, a ring, a staff, those things... That was giving him all the authority his father had. That was saying, I'm not just accepting you back into the house. I am now giving him control of all my bank accounts. I'm giving him control of all my authority. With that ring, his son could go in and say, hey, I need to buy this. I need to purchase this. I need to sell that. Any authority his father had, he now had by having his ring placed on his finger. All that authority, totally undeserving, totally freely given. Does that sound familiar at all? God coming into our lives and giving us authority to be able to serve him, to be able to have all the authority he has given us, even just over our own lives. And so he gives them his authority, brings them back in, totally restores them. And he starts to celebrate. And for his reasoning, verse 24, for, for this for this, my son was dead and is alive again. He is lost and now he, and is found. And they began to marry, be merry. So the they, so the dad's happy. He's going out. This is going on. Nobody else is excited yet. Everybody else is probably still in a little shocked, appropriately in the story. And after he does this, he restores them. And they see the joy of the father, what's going on in the father, everybody else starts to catch on going, okay, this is a happy occasion. This is a good thing he's back. You know, it's there. You know, kind of reading that situation and holding on. And I think sometimes we can sit there in the same situation. We look at a situation and go, oh, no, we're going to be critical. Let's see what happens. Is God really happy this person got saved? Well, let's wait and see how much fruit, you know. He was, a lot of, he was a big sinner, so we've got to see how many times he gets baptized or how long he gets held under until we can make a judgment call if we're going to be happy about this one. No, I mean, 
right? The immediate response. And, and I got to be honest with you, with me, it, it kind of challenged me in that sense, just the, the immediateness of this and this response, because there's many times I'll sit down and somebody will pray to accept Christ and go, yeah, we'll see how they do, how long they're going to rebel. God's faithful. He'll continue after him. He'll get, you know, he, he always gets them in the end. In a sense, he catches up with them and, and, and the, but man, some of these people are strong-willed. So I've, I've kind of been critical. Yeah, we'll see how long this one takes to actually submit or, you know, trust God or start to grow to, by my standard, not God's standard, obviously. But, you know, instead, no, there's immediate rejoicing. Immediate rejoicing. And if that was not the end of the story, most of us would love the story to end right there. But remember, there were two brothers. In verse 25, and it says, Now his older son was in the field, and as he came and drew near to the house, he heard music and dancing. So he called to one of the servants and asked, What are these things meant? What's going on? And he said to him, Your brother has come, and because he has received him safely and sound, your father has killed the fatted calf. So what's going on? He's coming back. What's all the hype going on in the house? Why are we throwing a party? Oh, your brother's back. Verse 28, but he was angry and would not go in. Sometimes there's older brothers when we sit down and we look at stuff and when we can kind of fall into one of these two categories, generally we end up not just one to the other, but ended up going off to where we're not considering God in our ways and living our own lives, or we get so involved that somehow we think we have a right and we're there. And so here's this older brother. He's out there. He's upset. And so he answered to his father and said, Lo, these many years I have been serving you. I have never transgressed or, com or committed any at any time. And yet you never gave me a young goat that I might be merry with my friends. But as soon as your son came, who has devoured your livelihood... With harlots, you killed a fatted calf for him. The older brother had a problem. The problem was the same as the younger brothers at first. The younger brother didn't want to have anything to do with you, Dad. I want to wish you were dead. The older brother, he was there. He was doing everything right, but he still did not have a relationship with his father. He did not know his dad's heart. He was there. I'm doing everything right so I can get what I'm supposed to get, and I'm right. I'm self-righteous, very much like the Pharisees. We're here, we're doing everything right. We are your chosen people. We are doing everything right. We're not like them. You know, we, we can do that in the church, but Lord, I've been serving in the church all these years. I've been faithful serving in this area. How can that person who just gets saved get blessed with that? And I'm still sitting in this situation. You would think after all these years, I kind of deserve some kind of blessing here in my life for this. And God goes, hasn't your walk with me been blessing enough? Haven't just being with me every day been a blessing? No, 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 no. But, you know, I know you blessed him, and I can't believe they won the lottery. I mean, they just got saved last week. I've been playing lottery tickets, but I've been serving. Or whatever the thought is, right? We can sit down and you look at it and go, how can God bless that person or that ministry or that thing? And God's going, but you've spent every day with me. Rejoice in that. Rejoice that you haven't had a walk through what this other brother's done. You, you've had me every day. And we can get so looking at that in our heart to where we turn out, we weren't really spending time with him. We were doing things to earn what? A good outcome, a good life, right? 
some times we can do it, and I did it many times. Okay, why do you go to church? Well, I'm going to do these things because it's going to be good. It's a good way of living. It's a blessed way of living by the Bible. It's the right thing to do. And I will go, I'll be faithful, and I'll serve in all these areas. And usually, you know where that shows up? That you are not, that where you're an older brother, at least personally for me, it's when I'm not in the Word of God doing devotions. I'm not spending time with Him. Right? I can be the perfect husband. I can make dinner every night. I can provide. I can even do all these great things for my wife. But if I do not sit down and spend time with her, you men know you'd be in a doghouse just like me. It doesn't matter what I get her. It doesn't, no. What does she want for Mother's Day? If you guys haven't figured this out by now, I'm going to help you out. It doesn't matter where you take her, what you do. She wants to spend time with you. Okay? And kids, she wants to spend time with you guys without arguing with her. <laughs> right? She, just, she wants to just hang out with you where she doesn't have to work at training and taking care of and tending and, and wiping your boogers, husbands. No. <laughs> but you know... She just wants to hang out. And that's where it comes down to. God just wants to hang out with you. If you are serving because you feel you have to at an obligation or any of the things that I have to do this to earn my way, no, he doesn't want it. Mary and Martha, what was it? So many things going on, but it's better just to come sit at my feet. Better just to come sit at my feet. And we can all start to either go one way or another. We get distracted by the things of the world or suddenly we get... I'm doing everything right. This just isn't fair. Or at least maybe that's just me. And the sad thing is, in the end of the story, we do not see the older brother come back, but the younger. In verse 31, then it says, And he said to him, Son, you are always with me. And this word son isn't just like, Hey, sonny boy, this is my child. This is the greatest uh, show of compassion, this word for a child you can have. There is... He does not love one of these sons any more or any less than the other. And the, the older brother didn't get this. He goes, man, I love you and you are with me always. And all that I have is yours. It is right that we should, we should make merry and be glad for your brother was dead and is alive again. And your loss, or was lost and now is found and when we think of that and we, we just look at it and we go, where's our heart? You know, if you want to know you're in relationship with God, you know his heart. What's his heart for those around you that are lost, that are suffering? Is it judgmental or is it, ooh, those people? I can't believe that person. Then your heart's in the wrong spot because we should be making merry when those things are happening. When's the last time you celebrated somebody repenting? Besides your own child. I mean, that's always good, right? Your kid comes and says, sorry for doing something. It's like, yes. You know, beautiful things as a mother. You know, better than flowers as a child who repents. Hear that, kids? Go home today, repent. Your mom will be happy for Mother's Day. In all three stories, there's one clear thing we need to remember. Because I guarantee you, everybody in here has somebody that rests on their mind as that prodigal, knowing that you've either been that way or that somebody you know is so lost you care about. In all three stories, one thing is clear. They all belong to God. They all had an owner. 
The shepherd, it was his sheep. The woman, it was her coin. The father, it is his son. And sometimes as a parent, or when you care about somebody, it's hard to remember that, that they are God's first and foremost. And no matter how much you're a mother and you love that child, you cannot ever get close to compare how much God loves that child, how much God cares for that child. And you can take comfort that he will go after the one that he will seek, he'll turn on lights, he is going to be intentional to find them, and he is going to be looking off in a distance for them. So no matter how they got lost out of foolishness, just by being seemingly misplaced or by choosing, God still is going to re-accept them, still looking for them, still caring for them. And so that's, as we look at these stories and these parables that I don't know how many times you, know, you, you hear and you read and how God just reveals them, he loves those tax collectors and those sinners. And he was making that clear. And at the same time, he loves those Pharisees and was making that clear. He wasn't slamming them. He wasn't beating them. He wasn't, no, he's going to be there. And not even that, heaven is going to be rejoicing at those things. And that is an amazing thing to see. And so um, one kind of final thing here. Um, Let's pray, and then I'll kind of go over it. Dear God, we thank you for your word. We thank you for just how amazing your love is. How there isn't a word to express how much you love us, Father. We thank you for just the many ways you show your love to us, Father, the instruments. How many of us have had just godly mothers that have been able just to care for us and mothers that have just given us that example. Help us just to trust in you that you love those who are lost and that we would not hesitate but to rejoice, Father, when you are working, when those repent, Father, that we would just have a joy and a relationship with you each and every day. In Jesus' name, amen.